Well, we're in a new series on sex, money, and power. Who needs a Bible? We'll be in Matthew 18. Just raise your hand. They will bring one right to you because we want you getting to read God's Word for yourself. So Matthew 19, if you just raise your hand, they will have them on the side aisles and they will uh, get a Bible to you. So last week we talked about sex. This morning in church in the earlier service, meaning to give me a compliment, I think one lady said, no, oh, you were going to talk about sex, but you didn't really talk about sex. I said, okay, well, I don't know what you heard, but anyway, <laughs> anyway, sometimes the sermon you hear isn't the one that we gave, uh, but, but um, we want to be looking at God's Word and to say, this is God's Word. It's a guide for our life. How do we order our lives to fit in with God and with his plan for us, and to be somebody who says, I'm going to align my life to live uh, by the Word of God and by uh, what he would desire for us to be and to do. So uh, um, we're going to be looking in Matthew 19. I want to tell you a little story about a guy named Jim Elliott. He was born in 1927. You've probably heard of him. He is in Portland, Oregon. He ended up going to Wheaton College, felt called by God to go be a missionary. He, uh, so he majored in Greek because he knew he would be doing, hoping to do Bible translation to an unreached people group somewhere in the world. <clears throat> he happened to look around his class and he would noticed a pretty girl named Elizabeth Howard. And he had this belief that romantic relationships can often distract people from pursuing God's will. So he didn't really want to get involved, but their interest in each other grew. And they agreed they were attracted to each other, but they were not convinced it was of God's leading. And uh, so they didn't immediately pursue a relationship between the two of them. But he ended up working in the summer at a, uh, with some missionaries in Mexico. And uh, then he also went to a conference where a missionary from Brazil was talking about unreached people groups. And uh, so when he graduated, he went down to Brazil <coughs> to work uh, with a group called the Aka Indians that had had no contact uh, with any believers. Well, I don't have time to tell you the whole story. Somehow, Elizabeth Elliot ended up being put in approximately the same part of the world, and uh, they continued a friendship for about five years before they finally got married and uh, began to try to reach out to the Aka Indians together. And after some encouraging encounters, Jim Elliot and four other missionaries on a fateful day attempting to set up a base camp near the Aka village, they were ambushed by 10 Aka warriors and speared to death. It was January 8, 1956. Jim was 28 years old, and his uh, uh, little baby daughter was not quite a year old yet. And Elizabeth and their little girl, Valerie, ended up staying there for five or six more years, and a lot of the Akas came to know Jesus Christ because of their witness and their sacrifice. Well, in his journal, Jim had written this. He said, quote, He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He's no fool to give up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And today we're looking at money, wealth, riches. You can relax. We've already had the offering. I know people get a little nervous when a preacher's talking about money, thinking that he wants them to give more to the church. And I know that someday you're going to stand before God in heaven. He's not going to ask just what did you put in the offering. He's going to say, what did you do with what I gave you? With all of it. So we need to be ready to answer that question. And uh, this is an area where some people choose, rather than having God be God in their life, they'll put something else into God's place. Uh, money is chosen by a lot of people for that because it's so shiny, it's so alluring, it's also so short-term and so counterfeit. And Paul described the human condition that we looked at last week in Romans 1, verse 21. He said, although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. 
So when we pick up the story in Matthew 19, Jesus is headed to Jerusalem with his disciples. He's already told them in advance he's going there to die for the sin of the world, for yours and mine, and uh, he will die as the atoning sacrifice because he's lived a perfect life. And so we're going to be celebrating that on Easter coming up. I just thought that last song the choir did was so beautiful, getting us into uh, the whole season of uh, Easter and looking at ourselves and then getting to share communion today of uh, looking to say, Lord, is there sin that I need to ask you to forgive, habits I need to root out? How do I get my heart ready uh, to be a place for the risen Christ to be the Lord there? And uh, I'm hoping that you're praying just two weeks from today is Easter. So I'm hoping that you're praying about who you can bring to church and who you can carpool with, okay? So that one, I know that second one doesn't sound very spiritual until you get here and there's nowhere to park. But if, if you could find somebody and leave a car somewhere else that day and, and uh, ride here together would be a huge help. So Jesus is walking to Jerusalem. This man comes running up to Jesus with a burning question, his most important question. And I want to contrast Jim Elliott, <clears throat> he's no fool who uh, gives up what he can't keep to gain what he can't lose, with the man in the story. <clears throat> Matthew tells us he was rich. The Gospel of Mark tells us he was young. The Gospel of Luke tells us he was a ruler. I mean, he had it made. He is powerful. He is wealthy. He is influential. And he's not happy. Because he's missing something. He knows he's missing something. There's just, I mean, every one of us, we were created in the image of God, so there's this God-shaped vacuum inside that just cannot be filled by anything else that we try to stuff in that place. So this man seems to have everything by this world's standards, but his heart is gnawing at him. It's something's missing. It's something's not right. Oh, You've got to keep searching. Keep looking. And, and so he comes to see Jesus. And so we pick up the story, Matthew 19, verse 16. He says, Behold, a man came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Mark tells us that he actually ran up and then he knelt before Jesus and he asked his question in a respectful way. So the man is young and he's eager, he's respectful. He really wants to know the answer. This is really bothering him. And Jesus said to him, Why do you ask me what is good? There's only one who is good, God. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. So the story starts with this conversation about being good because this young person is a seeker. He is searching, and, and that's good. I mean, some people are self-satisfied without God, but he, this guy wants more. He's smart enough. He's sensitive enough. He's spiritual enough to realize that money, power, and youth were not enough to satisfy the deepest longings of his soul. He knew that what he had was not enough to inherit eternal life with God, and that, that was causing him consternation. That if everything ended here, he would not be pleased. You know, there's a lot of seekers like him today. Maybe you're one of them looking to say, I know I don't have all the answers, but I am on a quest. I am looking. There has to be more than light to life than just collecting stuff. And you're open to hearing God and finding God. He calls Jesus teacher. And he asks him, what do I have to do to have eternal life? The other two books say, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? Like you'd be written into the will. And Jesus said, well, why do you ask me about what's good? There's only one who's good. That's God. And Jesus' answer, I think, could be misunderstood. Somebody might think Jesus is trying to make a statement about himself, but I don't think that's what's going on. I mean, it is true that Jesus was and is God. But that's not really what he's talking about. He's trying to focus this man's attention on God to say God is the only one who's truly good. And you have to come to God if you're going to enter into life, which is how Jesus said it. If you would enter into life, like this isn't life what we're doing now. Like this is just the dress rehearsal. 
that heaven is going to be true life and it's going to last forever. And so everything we're doing here is supposed to be in preparation for there. And so Jesus answers this question with a very unusual approach, I think. He refers to the Ten Commandments, which you could find in Exodus 20 or in Deuteronomy chapter 5. It's in the Old Testament twice. And then New the Ten Commandments are understood that Moses had gone up the mountain. Remember, he had two tablets of stone. So there's ten. You'd think there'd be five on one and five on the other, but there's actually four commandments that are vertical. They have to do with our relationship with God. Those are the first four. And then there are six commandments that have to do with horizontal relationships with us, with other people. And instead of, you know, Jesus focused on the second one. You'd think he would have focused on the first one to say, look it, have no other gods before you, make no idols, no carved images, don't take God's name in vain, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Jesus didn't focus on those. Instead, he went to the second tablet, the one that was about horizontal relationships, and he used those as the measuring stick of this man's righteousness. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and then just for good measure, Matthew uh, tosses in, and love your neighbor as yourself, which isn't one of the Ten Commandments, but he had heard Jesus talk about this when he, Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus had picked the one from Leviticus 19 that said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. And so Matthew linked those two up. And um, Basically, what he's saying is the way we treat other people is a strong indication of whether or not you are truly devoted to God. You could tell if you're truly devoted to God by how you treat other people. And this young man says, well, all these I have kept. What do I still lack? This young man assured Jesus he's kept all these commandments since he was a boy. And Jesus doesn't challenge that statement. He doesn't, doesn't say, no, you're lying. I know that on such a date you did this. He doesn't say that. In fact, the book of Mark tells us Jesus looked at this man, gazed at him at that moment, and loved him. And Jesus invited him to be a Jesus follower. He could have been disciple number 13. And this young man has so much potential, and he's so good, and he's Without God, it's tragic. His heart is unsettled. There's this unsatisfied craving that just won't be quiet. He still didn't seem to have God, at least not as much as he wanted. Something's missing. He still didn't have eternal life. He wasn't right with God. So he's still feeling hollow, feeling unsatisfied. There's this craving. So he was in good company. He still would be in good company if he was here today. Because there are a lot of people who are trying to live life right and they say, try to say the right things and do good things, but they ha don't have a connection to God. And they're unsatisfied because good is not good enough. Good without God is never good enough. We can't measure up with our own merits. So something was blocking his path to God into eternal life. And so Jesus begins, like a detective or a doctor, to begin to search to find where is the blockage? What is in the way? What's causing this problem? How do you get a clear path to eternal life? And so you look at verse 21 for Jesus' diagnosis. Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess, give it to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Both Mark and Luke have Jesus say, you lack one thing. Did you ever make lemonade and leave out the sugar? You lack one thing. I went to my grandma's house once and she made tang, except she grabbed the wrong bottle and it was a yeast. 
well, that was bad enough for breakfast, but, you know, she was from that generation you never wasted anything, so since nobody drank it at breakfast, she served it as our drink for lunch. <laughs> you lack one thing. You ever go out to play soccer and forget to bring the ball? You ever go out to your car and leave the keys sitting in on the counter? You lack one thing, just one little thing, but it's a showstopper. And Jesus says, if you're going to be perfect, go sell what you possess, give it to the poor, come follow me, you'll have treasure in heaven. It's a stunning prescription. It still causes alarm for people to this day. Jesus said, go get rid of everything you have in order to go to heaven because you're a person who's consumed with greed and you're not going to make it. And lots of people have given that choice and realized that that is the choice. They would say, well, then I'd rather not go. I'd rather choose to grasp onto a few thousand dollars now rather than to have the kingdom of God forever. And the usual response, I think, to this teaching of Jesus is to say, well, Jesus didn't really mean what he said. And we try to spin Jesus' word to say something else in order to convince ourselves, no, no, you can have both. You can have God and money. And I think Jesus meant what he said. That in our hearts, there's only one spot for somebody to be truly in charge. There's only one throne. There can only be one person or one thing on that throne. And you can't share it with God and money. You have to pick. I think Jesus meant what he said. And with this man, he's literally telling him, go get rid of all those st that stuff and come follow me. And the reason is simple. This man was an idolater. Money was his God. He was worshiping as an idol. He said he kept the Ten Commandments, but he really didn't. He kept about seven out of ten, and it wasn't enough. He had made money his God. Greed had been good for him, or so he thought, and he still wanted more. So money was more important than anything else in his life, and Jesus could see it was standing in the way between him and God that money was the most important. And how does this apply to us? For some people, it's a one-for-one. One. It's still the same. Because we can be greedy and not even recognize it, that we have made money our God. Go sell everything you have, give it to the poor. You'll have treasure in heaven. For other people, it's not money. It's their job or a relationship. The principle is this. God insists on being first in our heart above everything else. To not place anything between him and being number one. Anything which is more important than God has to go. God insists that no person, no thing can come in ahead of him in life. You know, Cindy and I got married. I made public promises to that woman, which was a good deal. I'm glad I did that. But I said, quote, I was forsaking all others. I will cling only to you and to you alone as long as we both shall live. So I had to stop having other girlfriends <laughs> to get married to Cindy so to bring home a little somebody to say, Cindy, I'm gonna, we're going to share. Look what I found. I think Cindy, I've never tried that, but I think Cindy would get pretty fussy about that. <laughs> She'd say, you know, that's a really kind of a bad idea because we made promises to each other till death do us part. And this doesn't look like you're fulfilling that promise. In fact, she'll even say, you know, that one has a crush on you. Watch out for her. Or that one, you, you're too friendly here. Or she's keeping an eye out. She's watching. And I like that. And God is far more demanding because he knows our heart. He's watching all the time. And if we're going to cling on to him and have him be number one, then we have to forsake all others. 
I mean, we need to imagine ourselves in a conversation with Jesus and open our heart to him, which is what we do when we have time of communion, time of personal reflection and, and asking God's forgiveness and, and getting right with him, but to let Jesus do that examining and that diagnosis and, and to say, is there anything that we need to forsake in our lives so that God can have uncontested spot number one in my heart? Because if there is, then it has to go. You know, some people hearing this will think, oh, that sermon doesn't really apply to me. I mean, money, me and my money, we're on speaking terms. I'm not really in love with it. I'd, I'd like to have a little more. But, you know, I don't think of myself as rich. Isn't that kind of funny? Have you, have you ever thought we compare ourselves to other people and we're always comparing ourselves to somebody who's maybe not quite as rich as, or a little richer than we are. So we always feel like we're kind of on the short end of it, right? And we, we think, well, this probably isn't talking to me. Well, I think Jesus is talking to us. He, Pastor Ron Klein was talk, talking about this, of, um, you know, who's the rich guy? Who's the rich girl? He said, well, if you could answer yes to any one of these four questions, then you'd be considered rich. Do you own a home? Well, then you're rich. Do you own a car? Then you're rich. Do you own a refrigerator? then you're rich. Do you sleep in a bed at night? Then you're rich. I mean, we're rich. Everybody in this room, all of us, we're all here. We're of the 7.6 billion people alive in the world today. Your wealth places you in the top 1% of this world. So we're in danger of having that be our God rather than letting God be our God. You're more at risk because of who you are, and where you live. And if the biggest thing we imagine changing in our lives is, boy, if I just hit the lottery or if I just got a huge inheritance, well, then I could really start living. Instead of saying the best thing I could do is put God first in my life and just do what he wants me to do with my life, whatever he's asking me. Well, if we've put money in that spot, then maybe we're trusting a different God altogether. And maybe we need to hear Jesus' warning here to the rich young ruler. Because Jesus talked a lot about money and a lot about possessions. In fact, more than he talked about heaven and hell and the dangers. He said in Matthew 6, where your treasure is, your heart will be also. He said also in Matthew 6, no one can serve two masters. He'll either love one and hate the other or be devoted to one and despise the other. You can't serve God and money. In chapter 13, he said the deceitfulness of riches choke the word of God. And it proves unfruitful in our lives. Right here in Matthew 19, he said, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. You got to want it. You got to pursue it. You got to put God first if it's going to happen in your life. So don't let anything ever block your path to God in eternal life. Whatever gets in the way has to go. So verse 22, when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. He was loaded. He didn't want to give it away. He'd worked very diligently to get to that financial location, way past survival mode, way past uh, his thriving and success mode. He's wondering about his significance. He's wondering about eternity. He knows he can't buy it. It's not for sale. How do I get to be sure I'm going to heaven? And he comes and asks Jesus, who says, give it all away because it's standing in your way. His wealth was weighing him down a lot. He was so sad because he was rich. He had a lot, and it was going to cost him so much to follow Jesus, to inherit eternal life. And he's us. He and we are in danger of exchanging the truth for a lie because 
we're often blind to the greed that drives us. Most people are. And we believe the lie that our worth is somehow determined by our net worth. And it's not. Your worth is determined by God who looked at you. You were sinful. You were broken. You were lost. You were wandering. You were abandoned. You were without hope. And he paid for you. He paid the highest price for you. He paid with the lifeblood of his own son so that he could call you his own and heal you and reclothe you and, and to help you to get to wholeness and, and to, to fill you with himself and to adopt you into his family and to fill you with his purpose and his pleasure. So let him be first in your heart and in your affections. You see, money is just a tool. It's intended by God to be used in your life to build into you and through you what God wants to accomplish. Let God be God. Follow Jesus Christ with your life. I mean, you're not the owner of all that's in your hands. You are just the manager. The Bible says when you come to Jesus and, and, and he buys you, he pays the price for you, you are not your own. You've been bought with a price, with his blood. Therefore, glorify God in your body. So pretending to be the owner when you're really just the manager, you're believing a lie. And it gets you twisted sideways. It will skewer your decision-making. I mean, this poor little rich young ruler let his riches and his giftedness block his path to eternal life. The thought of his money going to the poor saddened him. How unlike God. The Bible says God so loved that he gave that he has compassion for the poor. God loves to give to the poor. And so to, to, to be sad when he should be happy was so not like God. I mean, do you ever give to the poor? You see the beggars on the corners, even here in America. And what do you do when you see people along the side and you see them holding up a sign, please help, I'm homeless, we'll work for food. It's your first thought, they're trying to rip us off. I bet they made a lot of money standing on that corner today. Or if I give them money, they're probably just going to go buy booze or drugs with it. How much fun would you have if you chose, I'm going to just give away some cash. I actually saw a video of a guy who took $1,000 all in ones. And he had vest pockets. And he just went out with this money and he just handed out, you know, he was the most popular guy on the street. <laughs> but he had more fun giving it away. And if the rich man in this story, if he's as rich as he seems to have been, he could have given away a lot of money to the poor without lowering his lifestyle one bit. And he wasn't in danger of going hungry or being homeless, but it's just that he was in love with his money. He liked having his money. He loved the money. The thought of letting it go made him sad. Well, money is attractive. It's even lovable. It looks good. It feels good. It even smells good. But he had a choice on choosing his attitude he could have chosen the attitude, you know, what's yours is mine, I'm going to take it. That's stealing. It's wrong. It's evil. He could have had the attitude, which is probably the one he chose, if it's mine, I worked for it, and I'll keep it. But that was a lie. First off, he wasn't the owner, he was just the manager. And the second off, he wasn't going to keep it, for, not forever. You come into this world, you work hard, you earn stuff, you, you're supposed to be managing it, and you use it for a while, but you will leave it all here when you leave. You'll take none of it with you. The Bible says in Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the entire world. You use it for a while, then you leave it here. It is not yours. The third attitude he could have chosen was, it really is God's, and I will share it. That's the most like God, because God is generous, and we're naturally greedy. And our goal is to 
copy God and watch God and join God's family and live by God's values and live in God's eternal home. So Jesus made an observation then that has troubled a lot of people. The man is walking away sad, and Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with great difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Camel was the largest animal in Palestine. And the eye of a needle is probably one of the smallest spots that you could see something through. And Jesus is using exaggeration to make his point. What's the chance of a camel getting through the eye of that needle? Probably none. It'd be easier for the rich person to get into heaven. Why? Because the rich person is often in love with their money. And the richer a person is, the less appealing is the kingdom of God. And people in Jesus' day believed that financial resources, money was an evidence of God's blessing. That's why you hear the disciples respond, well, then who could be saved? And Jesus had some good news. He said, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. In other words, it's humanly impossible for a really rich person to love God more than money. But only God can make it happen. Only God can draw our hearts to himself. And anyone who wants to put God first and to make God number one needs supernatural help to accomplish that and to make it happen. Well, Peter responded next. He's one of the most vocal contributors. And he had given up his fishing business. He was away from home for months on end. So who knows? We're not told of the sacrifice that he uh, had created for himself or his wife or his children. For him to be away as a volunteer is one of the Jesus disciples rather than working for his paycheck at home. So Peter says, ask the so what? So what do we get out of this sacrifice? Look at verse 27. Peter said in reply, see, we've left everything and followed you. What then will we have? And Jesus said, truly, I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And anyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. And many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. Jesus wasn't making a promise to Peter, was he, that, boy, you just follow me and you will come out financially ahead. I doubt it. I would guess that he did not come out financially ahead, but that's not the point. The point is that God will satisfy those who put him first. And Peter certainly was that. God will satisfy their souls who place God above all else. People who have not exchanged the truth for a lie, he will give them good. He will meet their need. They won't be sorry. When you take the the risk to say, I'm going to put God in charge and I'm going to follow him, God is going to satisfy those. You know, Paul was somebody who was on his way up and up and up on this world's standard, and then God got a hold of him and turned him around, and he became an evangelist. He ended up giving up everything, he said, counted it as a loss that he might follow Christ. And then he went out as an evangelist and would gather Christians together and get churches started and then leave a group of people there and often would leave a junior pastor with them who had been part of Paul's team. And so he did this in Ephesus with Tim, Timothy. And we don't know whether Tim complained to Paul about his pay, but we can be sure that even back then, nobody was getting rich on a youth pastor salary or as on an interim pastor salary. And so Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, and he says this, "'But godliness with contentment is great gain.'" 
For we brought nothing into this world, and we can take nothing out of this world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many pangs. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. God takes care of those who live for him. And it's a fight to fight the good fight of faith, to put God number one in your life and don't let anything get in the way. So I invite you today to come to Jesus and to believe in him, to give him your life, to have him be number one in everything. Don't let anything stand in the way. We're going to pause and, and we're going to remember Jesus' sacrifice. And even by receiving those elements, his body and his blood, to say, Lord Jesus, clean my heart once again. I want to walk with you. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, I thank you for who you are, for what you have said in this world and the lessons that you taught and the people who represented us. And I pray that even now as we come before you that our hearts will be open to the guidance that you want to give us. And I thank you that you gave yourself for us. So we are listening to you. We want to follow you in all things and have you be number one. In Jesus' name, amen.